0: It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week I speak with Emily Scott, who is the pastor of St. Lydia's Church in New York City in Brooklyn. St. Lydia's is a unique and interesting congregation. It's a storefront church that's designed around a dinner church model. The congregation is about seven years old, and each week they gather for a meal that they cook and then eat and share together. And the liturgy itself is folded into and around this meal. So when Emily preaches in the middle of this dinner, she stands and delivers a sermon that is designed to elicit feedback from the people who are around the table. In fact, people get up and stand up and testify and speak to in response to what she's had to say. Not to express their opinions, Emily says, but instead to tell their stories. This is a model of preaching that has had an outsized impact, is having an outsized impact within the Capital C Church, and you can hear about it firsthand from Emily from St. Lydia's. Speaking of innovations in preaching, support for preachers on preaching comes from Candler School of Theology at Emory University. They're now offering an online doctor of ministry degree for experienced ministers who want to strengthen the connection between theology and practice. In this program, you can study with Candler's renowned faculty in one of two different tracks. You can either go the route of biblical interpretation and proclamation or church leadership and community witness. Scholarships are available, and details can be found at candler.emory.edu forward slash preaching. It is a gray and snowy day here in Chicago as I'm recording this, so Atlanta sounds pretty good. But for now, we're going to go to New York, and here she is, Emily Scott from St. Lydia's. Well, why don't you, if you could, tell us about St. Lydia's and um, what makes that place unique, and it's not your average church. When I think about preaching sort of in my stereotypical mainline mind, I picture somebody standing in a pulpit, wearing a black robe above the folks that they're preaching to and with, and that's not what you have going on. Is that right?
1: That's right, yeah. It looks a little bit different, but we're, we're very much um, a church just like any church. <laughs> preaching at St. Lydia's um, looks and feels a little bit different because everyone's seated around a table. Um, everything that we do in worship takes place around a meal, and the meal is framed by liturgy. Um, and and I guess the, the liturgy frames the meal too, but... Um, So, we start off the service with a candle lighting and with singing, and then we move to the tables, which are set for dinner, and um, break bread there and share the bread, and then everyone sits down and has this big meal that we've made together, Um, and then my preaching kind of emerges from that context, so I just stand up in front of folks, and we read through scripture together, Um, I preach a pretty short, somewhat informal sermon, and then we also have a time at the end of the sermon for what we call the sermon sharing. Um, So folks have a chance to, we hear just three or four stories or experiences from the congregation. Um, So it's really something that the congregation does together in a way. Um,
0: Are those responses that you're getting, do you have people designated beforehand? Like you're going to respond this week or is that impromptu?
1: It's totally impromptu. And this is a practice that... um, We learned from St. Gregory of Nyssa Church in San Francisco, primarily. They um, worked with this practice for a long time and so sort of learned what really worked and we were able to just sort of like take what they learned and use that. Um, But there's after the sermon, there's a time of silence and reflection to just give people a chance to sort of um, ruminate on what's been said and listen. Um, And then I ring a little bell and I ask people to share a story or an experience that was sparked by the text. And that prompting of, um, I actually say sometimes, like, I'd like you to share a story and not an opinion, uh, which, again, is drawn straight from St. Gregory's. Um, And it, it invites people to really speak theologically from their experience as opposed to just talking about what they think.
0: So is it, like, testimonial or is it, are people making faith statements or are they?
1: No, I mean, it's really a lot more informal than that. And there's, I think there's a quality, this might help, like I think part of the quality at St. Lydia's around preaching is very much about little fragments and pieces of um, like little shards of experience, like where we see God's presence. And we kind of piece those pieces together in a way. And they don't ever really make anything um, that's like whole, but you kind of get this sense of um, God's presence in small moments. So they're really very small little reflections and stories, just like little bits and pieces of experience. And someone might say, you know, I had an experience this week on the subway and it just reminded me of the way that, um, what we saw in the, in the sermon and like, like I don't know what that means. And, and then that's the end of the, the reflection. So it's really, um, it's not a testimonial. It's not like a proclamation of faith. It's just a story. It's just like a little scrap.
0: It reminds and you you're, me of- you're <laughs> modeling how to do that in your own preaching.
1: That's the hope. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's really the hope that I'm modeling that and that they are then picking it up and learning how to do it.
0: So I have a ton of questions about how this works and how it might uh-huh. go off the rails, too. But I want to contextualize this for people who might not know about St. Lydia's first. So mm-hmm. you are a, uh, a new church start, right? You guys, yes. um, an entrepreneurial effort that arose from yourself and a group of other people to start your own church. And you began without any denominational affiliation, if I understand the history. Mm-hmm. In Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um can you tell us the story of kind of where you came from and 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 who you are as a church right now
1: yeah um we did we did kind of arise from the margins of the church. um One thing I try and make clear is that uh we weren't sort of like a renegade group of spiritual people that had no mooring and denominational life. <laughs> um I was raised Episcopalian. And then went to Divinity School and then was working at the Riverside Church in New York and um, had a lot of Episcopal priests who were mentors of mine that were involved in the forming of this kind of new experimental thing. And so in the beginning, it was sort of loosely affiliated with Episcopal clergy and ties, and we had Episcopal clergy who presided, and that kind of anchored us in the denomination. Um, and then as it grew, we connected ourselves with a Lutheran congregation that hosted us for a while, and then my um, my call and my call to, um, to become ordained sort of grew out of that relationship. So it sort of, um, it kind of emerged in a way, but there was a real kind of fertile soil of denominational uh, affiliation, if that makes sense. Yeah, but, but it wasn't. It wasn't like someone in a synod office or a diocesan office said, "You know, we really need a church in Gowanus, in Brooklyn. Like, let's find someone to do that." You know, it didn't start at the top. It really emerged from, you know, me, me moving to New York and meeting people and thinking like. There's a lot of people who seem interested in the fact that I work at a church and there's a lot of people who I'm meeting who seem to have a really deep spiritual hunger, but they're not connected to a spiritual community and they have looked and cannot find one that feels right to them. Um,
0: so, so what, in, instead of saying you should come to Riverside, yeah. what prompted you to think I should start my own thing here?
1: Mm-hmm. It was really clear to me that um, they were feeling lost like a thing I heard a lot was I tried going to a few churches and I felt like I couldn't get my foot in the door. Um, and also their experience of spirituality was was fairly far, I would say, outside of like being able to walk in the doors of a church and sit down and just kind of say like, yes, this is, this is right. This fits. This is what makes sense to me.
0: Your style from mm-hmm. the sermons that I've read and listened to is fairly Christocentric. You seem to mm-hmm. have a deep love for Jesus. The stereotype that I carry around in my head would be trying to reach folks who are on the margins of the church or who have mm-hmm. never been in the church or who are dissatisfied with the church, that starting with with Jesus might actually be a stumbling block and, and alienating. How do you square up your own personal faith and your theology, mm-hmm. and, and if I'm wrong in the assumption about your Christocentrism, tell me, but mm-hmm. with folks for whom you know some sort of spiritual Inarticulated spiritual yearning, mm-hmm. um, how does that, how, how do you, do you know what I'm trying to say? How, how do yeah. you bring who you are in your relationship with Jesus to something where that might feel a little overwhelming to people at first mm-hmm. or not be what they think they're hungering for anyhow?
1: I think we are helped uh, because of the context of what worship looks like at St. Lydia's. So from the very beginning, when people walk in the door, they're not in a church building, they're in a storefront. And what's happening is primarily an experience that everybody has had, which is like sitting down and sharing a meal together, um, in a way that feels rich and, um, rooted and like fundamentally human and sacred. So I think that that sense of like, there's a thing happening here that's universal that I can root myself into. Um, creates a sort of um, a springboard for me to kind of go really deep in terms of the Bible and theology.
0: Oh, that's great. So the there's a sort of format content distinction where the the liturgical format is mm-hmm. welcoming and something people do. And then yeah. the content can be, it's sort of uniquely particular, strange mm-hmm. Christian content. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And I would say that the liturgical format actively disrupts the expectations that people have for what it means to walk into a church and like start intoning the creed. Like it's so clear that, that, that no one's being asked to assent to anything. Um, <laughs> at least that's my, my sense of it. It's, it's so clear that no one's being asked to assent to anything that um, what's happening is kind of in a totally different vein Um, so, and, and then like, you know, the basis of everything that I do in preaching is scripture for sure. Like that's the seed that everything grows from. And that's the, that's true of the liturgy too. I think, you know, when I started the church, one of my questions was how, you know, I think that Christianity is so beautiful and that like the basic ingredients of this faith are, Connect to to so many people, um, like bread and oil and water and um, and song and singing. And so, can we can we kind of boil the liturgy down to these really basic components that speak to everyone, and then um, or almost everyone, and then be really clear about the fact that we're a Christian community um, and that these are the stories that we're going to delve into. Um,
0: so rather also, than rather mm-hmm. than the whole experience for someone who doesn't have an experience of it beforehand. Mm-hmm being this alienating thing, including yeah. the content. And, and by alienating, I mean what we might take for granted, those of us who are rooted in a pretty traditional liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something you thought of beforehand, or as it started to unfold, you put kind of logic around it? It was
1: 100% intentional. Like, that was the formational question around St. Lydia's getting started, is like, how can we let these symbols speak for themselves instead of um, trying to interpret them for people? and kind of you know like giving people the eucharist and then telling them what it means like can we have an experience of the eucharist where people take the eucharist and think oh my god this is <laughs> i know what this means like uh it, do you do you know what i mean
0: absolutely
1: um, yeah and symbol speaking for themselves is huge so so there is this sense that like everything that happens in the liturgy should not need interpretation and one thing that i often say is that in my seven years of doing this, no one's ever come up to me and said like, this is really nice, but like, what does it mean? Um, it's, it's self-evident what it means. I think the same way that like the feeding of the 5,000 was self-evident um, and it has layers of interpretation and layers of meaning. Like you can, you can continue to delve into that meaning. Um, and I think the same is true of like breaking bread, standing in a circle with friends every week over and over again with a blessing you know like it keeps um growing deeper
0: so can you just walk us through assuming that there's a relatively fixed liturgical flow can you walk us through like from the <laughs> processional hymn to the benediction or what yeah, those absolutely. look like
1: um yeah so uh, there's a soft start to the service so people arrive between uh you know six thirty and 7 for instance and um, right around seven o'clock, like the meal, we've kind of gotten this down to a science where the meal is kind of done cooking and everybody's set the tables and everything's ready to go. Um, and the this, the music kind of begins and everyone gathers around the um, at the front of the church and everyone gets a candle and we're singing a nice um, sort of chant, a little simple song. Um, there's an opening prayer. Uh, then there's a candle lighting. Everybody makes their way to the tables and lights all the candles on the tables. So there's this kind of lovely, spreading of the light in the evening. Um, we have our Eucharistic prayer over the bread, which is in fact the bread that we will eat as a part of our meal. It's not special bread. It's just our regular bread. Um, share the bread. Everyone sits down, um, just chats and like has a nice time for kind of 20, 25 minutes, like as people are eating. Just regular
0: standard dinner party kind of conversation.
1: Yeah. Just checking in, talking to each other, um, chatting. Sometimes it's, um, you know, sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes it's like hard to figure out what to say to someone if they seem really different from you. There's like a range of folks who are there, uh, so it's not it's not a dinner party. Like it's not always easy. Which but I think you're
0: not key. guiding that part of the mm-hmm. liturgy. It's, it's
1: and I think you know the idea that it's not guided is important to me because I do think that sometimes we like overfunction a little bit for our congregations and try and make everything easy for them um, and. I think what that develops is like a lack of tolerance for discomfort in our, in Christians, Mm. which like, if we can't be uncomfortable, um, and we can't kind of like take risks together, then, um, I think that's really, that's not very gospel focused, you know, like Jesus doesn't call us into sort of, um, feeling really comfortable all the time or really good.
0: (laughs) So you're going to have, so there is even some intentionality about Letting what unfolds unfold and being with people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we could like really overprogram it and have like a little card with a question for the day and like that kind of stuff. And I think that that, um, it kind of lets people off the hook of being with one another, um, and just, you know, facing the fear. (laughs) Sometimes there's just fear involved in it (laughs) and that's fine. Um, so we have our conversation and then um, I stand up and we read scripture together and we usually do it in sort of like a Lectio Divina style where we, we read it a few times and I ask people to share a word or phrase that struck them in the text um, and kind of begin to build that relationship with the scripture passage. Um, and then I preach, you know, an informal... Sermon. It usually has um, sort of fragments of my own experience, little stories, a sense of um, my own kind of confession of where I am with whatever I'm preaching on. Hopefully, um, and then open the 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 sermon for, um, for sermon sharings and we get kind of three or four little stories from folks in the congregation and, you know, sometimes it's kind of like, oh, okay, you know, that happened. Cool. And sometimes it's just absolutely devastating the things that are shared. Um, not in so much that they're like people sharing their deepest, darkest secrets, but just, um, the, the sense of vulnerability and the sense that, um, God is at work in people's lives and that they're able to tell those stories to a group and kind of the group can hold that.
0: Um, How does knowing that a part of the aim of your sermon is to elicit mm -hmm. and not just elicit a deep thought, um, but to elicit a spoken response, Mm
1: -hmm. how does
0: that change your preparation as opposed to what you might have been taught in seminary or what, how you, I'm sure you've preached other places how you're preparing a sermon where there's not that expectation. Immediately, as soon as I'm done talking, we're going to be hearing from other folks. How does that change what you're putting together?
1: It's really wonderful for a number of reasons. I think the best thing about it for me is that um, my sermon doesn't have to carry everything that um, a sermon sometimes has to carry. So for instance if there's something that's big that happened in the news, but my sermon isn't kind of going in that direction, I can generally trust that somebody in the um, sermon sharing will bring that up if it's something that's close to them. Um, And so you get like this kind of, you have this multiplicity of perspectives on a text, and it means that my opinion is not the only one that matters, which I really appreciate, (laughs) Um, because it, it sort of, it shares that sense of like our relationship to the text. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Are you yeah. the the lone preacher? Is it you week in week out queuing these things up?
1: I would say um, I preach like 5 out of every 6 weeks. And D- then we'll have guests. Sometimes we have congregants preach. We have some interns who preach. You know, there's sometimes we have a sermon series where there's a lot of guest preachers, but I do, you know, the majority of the preaching.
0: I was going sometimes- to ask like the mm-hmm. model where you're teaching people how to do what you're doing eventually after time, does that call into question the necessity of your your own voice? Do you know what I'm trying to say?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it does because I think, um, you know, the reason that I don't share for three minutes and then invite everybody to share for three minutes is that part of the role of my preaching is to create a container that holds whatever it is that we're going to talk about. So you know, if we're going to go real deep and start talking about racism in our city in regards to affordable housing and gentrification um i'm not just going to kind of like open that up as a subject and then like let people share their experiences <laughs> you know like i'm gonna i'm gonna take a good 10 or 12 minutes to kind of create um a framework for what we're going to talk about and sort of set a sense of tone and also um to do some interpretive work about how god is active and moving in this subject that we're taking on so you're going to
0: kind of define the terms with your sermon of what the conversation what like what the boundaries and borders are and the norms are
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and i think also defining a sense of um like pastoral gentleness and um yeah gentleness is huge because i think like when we talk about the tough stuff the first place it goes for a lot of people is like a real deep sense of guilt And sometimes it even comes up in the sermon during like this kind of like, um, you know, I should do better. Like why, you know, this kind of like, if I really cared about this, I would be doing more. Or like, I guess, you know, like this kind of, um, I don't even know what you would call it, but sometimes legalistic, sometimes like sort of shame stuff that comes up, which is is good. It needs to come up.
0: But But how do you, do you feel yourself (laughs) then compelled pastorally in the moment as a Lutheran to respond Mm -hmm. to people's response to the law with a word of grace or do you just let it sit?
1: Absolutely not. I let it sit. Yeah. And that's another piece of like, um, being okay with the discomfort of it. And I think it's a, another key piece of our theology is around, um, embracing ambiguity. So, you know, the sermon sharings can be really, really different. Sometimes there's something that like, uh, I just really disagree with the theology and I, and I want to say like, oh, but that's not true. Like this and this and that. Um, but I never do that. Uh, after each sermon sharing, my response is to just say, thank you. Um, And then the next person shares. And I think what's communicated in that is that um, each person is having a different experience of the text, a different experience of their life. And then we can hold all of that together at the table without having to resolve it into like one narrative of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done or what our experience as Christians should be. Um, We have this multiplicity of experiences.
0: Do you feel a need to police both for content and time. How do you stop this from being a four hour dinner church?
1: Yeah. I mean, a huge part of it is the framework that you set and your expectations that you set for the sharing before it takes place. And we learned that so much from St. Gregory's. So, you know, my instructions are very precise. It's, um, you know, let me see if I can do this right. Um, uh, at St. Lydia's, we share the sermon, I'm going to invite you now into a time of silence. Um, so you can reflect on the text. At the end of the silence, you'll hear a bell. And when that bell, that that bell ringing is an invitation for you to share a story or experience briefly that was sparked by the text. And then I'll say, you're invited to share briefly so we can hear different voices. And you're invited to share a story instead of an opinion because Jesus told stories and we tell stories too, or something like that, you know? Mm, so it's mm. it's really precise. And I would definitely say that in the first few years, um, we got some kind of, it was harder to kind of rein it in. Um, and there have been moments where I've said um, <laughs> recently, just a few weeks ago, I said to somebody, land your plane, land your plane for me. All right, we got it. <laughs> but
0: I did you say that was, out loud or were you thinking? Oh,
1: yeah. That? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I don't see it as policing. I see it as um, me being the holder of the kind of safety and boundaries for the group. And that's my job. Like, my job is to keep everybody as safe as I can. You can't ensure everyone's safety ever. Um, and to make sure that, um, that there's a sense that, um, yeah, what we're doing together is, is good for the whole. So I've stopped people in moments where, um, I felt that hateful language was going to be used. Um, and you know, you learn to do that gently and with love and without creating a sense of humiliation for the person involved. Do you Um, have to work
0: behind the scenes to elicit a uh, variety of voices it tend to be the same people who want to testify each week who are good at public speaking or have you know have a lot of stories to tell
1: it's gone through phases at this point i don't have to do that at all um i think that's great yeah i do call on people and sometimes i'll just say um let's heard let's hear from someone we haven't heard from in a while you know like i i try and be pretty naked about why I'm asking for a certain thing (laughs) and that's like teaching you know like you're teaching people as you go like if there's somebody who tends to kind of want to speak each week um like I'm I'm teaching the person to listen some every once in a while someone will interrupt somebody else's story and I'll just say something like you know let's take this time to listen instead of telling our own stories
0: does the does the speaker the the responder do they rise and tell their story or do they stay seated at the table and tell it
1: they stay seated. Yeah, something else that I think kind of assists with the power dynamic in the room is that I'm standing, and when people share, they're, they're seated. And so there is a sense that, like, I'm still presiding over what's happening in the room. Um, and that, again, like, gives a sense of safety.
0: It's really interesting. The, one, one of the things I'm learning from the way you're describing this and the assumptions that it seems like you're carrying into the task, mm-hmm. you might look at it from the way I preach. Um, and see, wow, this is this real relinquishment of pastoral authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it is, but at the same time, you're also having to exercise pastoral authority in a way that is more firm than Mm -hmm. most preachers have to in the preaching moment, at least.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think you do relinquish actually, you know, I don't think, I don't think I relinquish anything. I don't think I lose anything. Like if anything, I gain something because whatever I've put out there in the sermon is made so much more rich by other people's, um, sharings. And there's been moments where like someone shared something and I'd say, I'd say like in my head, that's, that's what I've been trying to say. Like this whole sermon is what you just said in three minutes and like the most beautiful little (laughs) nugget of sharing that I've ever heard. Like it's, it's really lovely. And so, um, I think it sets up You know, it's kind of like this idea that, like, the I'll go first idea. Like, as leaders, one of the biggest things we do is just say, like, I'll go first. Like, let me tell stories. Let me talk about my interaction with this text. Let me talk about what I noticed. Um, And then, like, and then you try it. So it it is an act of teaching as preaching, I think. But I think there's also a pedagogy involved because um, you have the opportunity to really give people the time and space to do theological reflection and to have like, um, to have their own sense of homiletical interpretation. Like they're all preaching these little mini sermons that you've kind of set up um, room for. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it also means like if I'm not going to share a piece of myself um, and like make myself a little bit vulnerable and call on piece of my own experiences, I can't expect the congregation to do that either. So it really holds me up to um, a very particular set of standards. Um, but I think when I go there, we all go there and like the church grows and changes and takes things on in new ways. And like, it's just, it's beautiful when it happens, you know?
0: How long does the whole experience last? Once the sermon is done and people have responded, do things wrap up after that?
1: Um, after the sermon and the response, we, uh, we pray, And so I go back to the tables and we sing a song and I invite people to just offer their prayers and everyone prays out loud. And that time, um, it really kind of captures like whatever's kind of been brought up in the sermon or if sermon sharings have kind of been a little bit unnerving or have um, if there's been tough stuff that we've been talking about, the prayers kind of give this space to just kind of give all of that to God. And that's one thing that I I almost always talk about in the intro to the prayer is like we just can put all of this in front of God and trust that God can hold it. So we have these pretty extended prayers and it's it's a lot of silence. And then we we sing again. And then we have um, a congregant reads a poem that's been selected to um, kind of be juxtaposed with the text. It just kind of gives space and room for everything to sort of um, settle in a certain way. Yeah. And then we bless the cup at the end of the meal and then everyone cleans up together. Um, So there's like a lot of bustle and hustle and, you know, moving around, hustle and bustle, I should say. (laughs) And then we have a final hymn and announcements and a blessing at the end, back at the front of the space and everybody takes off from there. So the whole experience is a solid two hours. It's a long service. And if you come a little bit early and you leave a little bit late, it's big. And a lot of our folks travel from other parts of the city, like it can take some of our people an hour to get there. So it's a big commitment. You know, sometimes our impulse with church and kind of trying to fit into the culture has been to say like, let's see if we can like make this as short as possible and fit it into people's lives. Like do like, you know, a 30 minute like prayer meeting, for breakfast before work or something like that. And we've actually gone the opposite direction and said, like, if we're going to do this and if you're going to take the time to like come to church and get on the subway and it's, you know, you're tired and it's after work and all that kind of stuff, like let's really dig in and like make it a really rich experience um, and take our time with it.
0: Well, and there's that, this is kind of obvious, but to eat together is to be vulnerable.
1: Yeah. Well, and you, I mean, the table is very intimate, very vulnerable It's also fraught. I mean, it's, um, you know, like, I think we could all think about the way that the table functioned in our home as children and, like, what that meant. And for some people, you know, the table is a place where, like, a fight breaks out every single night. It's not
0: that the table itself is going to smooth over all difficulty, um, but you're going to welcome it in and eat with it, right? And around it. and
1: Yeah, and I think, in fact, like, that's probably I'm just thinking of this, but that's probably part of the pattern of the liturgy is that actually the table's role is to help us bring some things out that we normally wouldn't reveal um, and a lot of you know a lot of my preaching is about truth and sort of gently uncovering the truths that we shy away from, and there's a kind of there's a confessional quality to that um, but that we can kind of come to this table and let our guards down enough to reveal some things that we might not even want to see in ourselves. And also see that like those are the places where God is most active, (laughs) you know, and kind of like remaking us in these new ways. But we we can't be remade remade if we don't allow ourselves to kind of um, come into that space of uncovering. And so I think that like that, um, that's a huge piece of it for me. And there is this kind of like confession and like assurance quality of the way that I preach, I hope.
0: Do you feel people Changed by the stories that you tell and the stories that they hear um, mm-hmm. have you have you witnessed that? Are people receptive to it to being changed?
1: absolutely I mean I think I think people are not necessarily changed by the stories that I tell. I think the stories that I tell allow me to kind of dive into asking some questions that um, that that open things up for people. Generally my sermons start with some kind of story that kind of move into an exegesis of the text and then they kind of dive into me kind of making my own confession at some point and saying, you know, like for instance, uh, at a certain point I said, this year I have been scared that nothing can ever change and that the um, the entrenched racism in our country is intractable and we have marched and we have worked and I've been afraid that um, nothing's going to change about this. Uh, and then then I'll, I might say something like, you know, you might be feeling like there's nothing you can do. Or you might wonder if, um, you know, X and Y. So, like, so this set of questions that hopefully kind of opens things up for people. And then the idea is that the sermon kind of emerges from those questions. Um,
0: does it try to answer as, them or does it just sit with them?
1: It depends on the sermon. And sometimes I would say that... Um, sometimes it, I don't think I try and answer them. (laughs) I think, I think I do try and return to that place of like, of the God that I see and like the the God that I see and the way that I see that that God working. Um,
0: I think you you do in the sermons that I listen to, you do an excellent job of weaving together the scriptural narrative with the things you are witnessing in the city. Um, There was a sermon that I listened to about the story of the woman from the Gospels breaking open the oil and pouring it over, perfume, and pouring it all over Jesus, right? And, um, and the response that the his disciples have, you know, how dare she, and the sort of muttering and gossip that takes place. And then you told the story of being in a restaurant in the West Village and witnessing an eruption between two people at a table, and how in the same way that the woman sort of violated the laws of decorum that's exactly what you saw happen in this restaurant. And then you go from there to connect the young activists in Black Lives Matter and the way that they are, in in terms of some workshopping that you did with them, they are disrupting the and violating the laws of decorum around activism and protest. Um, and I, I thought that was really well done. And you didn't try to sort of hang it all together at the end. You let these things you opened it up right and you let them sit there and then you ask the question have you ever been told you're too much now is is that model is that typical
1: that's pretty typical i would say and i think in the you know one of the turning little hinges in that sermon uh if i'm remembering correctly was um was saying like all of us have a person inside of us or, or, or something inside of us that's embarrassed when someone makes a scene. And I think for like my, my mostly white, uh, predominantly white congregation, like that was the piece that I wanted to uncover a little bit. Um, and say like, in what ways are we sort of saying to other people, like you're too much, like I'm afraid of you. I'm, I'm afraid of how much you have to give. Like, I'm afraid of this huge amount of oil that you're pouring out. Like I'm afraid of. Um, like this anger that I see emerging in our country and I want to back away from it and decide like, actually what you have to say doesn't matter. Um, So like for a predominantly white congregation, I wanted to pull that out. But at the same time, I think that probably everyone in the room can identify with that feeling of being told like you're too much, like make yourself someone different, especially some of our um, LGBTQ folks who have been told like the way you want to be, there's something wrong with that. So trying to like weave together those pieces of like, common experience um that's very human that we all can identify with and then kind of make the leap to like an experience that we haven't had of oppression for someone else that we've never we've never had to experience Mm. you know but we can kind of connect a little bit more so i i think that's fairly typical and that's kind of what i'm trying to do is kind of weave this together but hopefully there's a moment in the sermon where kind of the bottom falls out and there's there's an emotional impact for the person listening that causes them to say like um, oh yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs>
0: like I've but, been there. <laughs> but then it causes you know? them, and this is what feels so unique about what you're doing to me. It then causes them to want to speak to that, and I think oftentimes traditional preaching can really, traditional white preaching at least, um, can really look like a virtuoso performance, right? Um, and it's done, and it's done beautifully and well, and carefully crafted, and is deeply eloquent, but when you're finished as a as a listener, what do you do? It's We scored tickets recently to go see um, Yo-Yo Ma play at the symphony here in Chicago. One of our kids plays the cello and somebody gave us tickets. And then we had two. So we wanted to buy two more. So I called at the very last minute, like half an hour before the symphony. And they said, yeah, we have tickets, but they're right in the front row, which I guess for symphony goers, those are not good seats to be right there. But it's like, cool. Uh, you know. So we went. And we sat in the very front row. So we're like, He's up on a riser that's maybe six, seven feet high. But Yo-Yo Ma is right there. And it was amazing. And I felt so moved. But when he was done, it didn't make me want to, like, grab a cello. <laughs> and, and I think preaching, my own preaching, not to say I'm the Yo-Yo Ma of preachers by any stretch of the imagination, but my own preaching can have that same sort of silencing effect. Um, but what you're doing is calling forward speech, Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, despite the fact that I I often have a tendency to want to be Yo-Yo Ma in my preaching (laughs) and to sort of do something that's beautiful and and just like perfect in all these different ways, I find over and over again that the sermons that receive the most response and that people talk to me the most about afterward and that seem to impact people the the most are the ones that feel the messiest to me and the ones where I feel like I'm just really... um, I don't know kind of kind of like going to a place that makes me feel uh like i don't really have everything buttoned up and tied together um which is not to say that i'm not prepared or that i'm preaching from my wounds and not my scars or doing something that's inappropriate or overly you know overly vulnerable um but i think um what you're saying is exactly true that that what we offer is what we're going to get back and that if you can Kind of give something that um, feels like it's not completed. Yeah, there's room in that for people to find their own sense of incompleteness and like and offer it, you know. And you kind of you really do sort of figure things out together as a community.
0: And then also room for God to come in and finish the story. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you've read Serene Jones' book, Trauma and Grace. Mm. It's actually it's a very good preaching book and. She has a chapter in it about the and the original ending of the Gospel of Mark and how the women, um, she's speculating that they're experiencing trauma and that for trauma victims, a neatly wrapped up story isn't helpful. It doesn't feel real because Absolutely. they tend to be trapped in a cycle of the trauma revisiting itself, mm-hmm. revisiting them. And so that what Mark is offering is... I'm not going to tell you how this ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it ends. You'll yeah. discover how it ends.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's the same thing for for sort of my experience of faith. Like as a preacher, I mean, I'm not going to convince anybody to believe in God with my words. <laughs> you know, like I really don't think that um, it's not like we're having like a debate and I'm going to win somebody over. I think my job as a preacher is to um, is to to create an experience of the sacred and of the holy. And, um, there's a number of ways that that can take place, but like certainly, um, helping people feel like they can open to a deeper level of, um, who they are and their relationship with God. Like that's, that's more of my goal than kind of giving an argument for God or, um, Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. So let's
1: create an experience and and then let's hear what other people are experiencing, knowing that like none of it is complete.
0: I got to ask about St. Lydia's and the congregation and the experience Mm -hmm. there. It does sound a little bit like a nightmare for an introverted person. Um, Is that a... Am I wrong about that? Um.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, it's funny because I am an introvert, like a pretty extreme (laughs) introvert. And um, I said to a staff person the other day, my um, Julia, who's our community coordinator, I was like, just we were talking about something else. And I was like, you know, I just really hate um, like going to dinner parties where I don't know people. And she was like, Emily, are you kidding me? Like, you started a dinner church. Um, You're a masochist. Yeah, exactly. But I do think it points to like this our greatest challenges are also the place of like the greatest opportunity. You know, like this mm. is what, what I need. And this is what introverts need. Like we need to connect with other people um, possibly in a deeper way than extroverts do. Like I think extroverts um, find that connection, in a lot of different places.
0: Oh, that's um, interesting. So to create an environment where conversation across a dinner table is going to be made sacred is actually a safer place for an introvert to mm. to take that risk than yeah. mm-hmm. going over to the neighbor's house for dinner or something
1: um yeah for introverts uh, it can be overwhelming, but you also know what the structure of the evening is going to be um, and you know like when you're gonna have to talk to people and then when there's like long periods of silence where you won't have to um, there's a lot of hiding places
0: <laughs> within the sense. liturgy yeah um,
1: exactly little corners
0: <laughs> I feel and and I'm, I know you've heard this Emily, but but I feel like the church, with a capital C, has a great deal to learn from the innovations that you're practicing, but also the, the deep tradition that you're tapping into. Um, and that for a church of, you know, sounds like 30 to 50 people gathering together for dinner, you're having an outsized impact. And I know that, um, that this conversation is really going to speak to a lot of worship leaders who listen, and it does to me anyhow, and think, wow. There are things i could be doing differently while keeping fidelity to to our traditions that could really open up so i really appreciate your work and your ministry thank you
1: i was so grateful for the opportunity and um hopefully if i'm in chicago i'll get to say hello in person at some point
0: that'd be awesome and if you come to st paul's i'll interrupt our whole thing and i'll say now emily what do you think about what you've heard (laughs) exactly (laughs) many thanks for listening to the christian centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hooper and Steve Thorngate.